Uh, if you've been around for a little bit, you know that we just finished up a series called Roots of a Healthy Church. We went section by section through First and Second Timothy. We saw uh, as Paul instructed Timothy on uh, how to pastor a church, how to maintain a healthy, thriving community of believers, which if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know is not an easy task because the church is made up of all of us, <laughs> right? No offense. Charles Spurgeon, he once noticed there, there isn't a perfect church, and he said if he found one, he would go ahead and ruin that church because he would become a member of it, thus making it an imperfect church again. But as imperfect as the church may be, it is always worth the effort. It is the most important place in our lives as the bride and body of Christ. In fact, his plan is for us to be gathered into these smaller church communities where we can grow, we can be held accountable, we can be encouraged to live more and more like Jesus. And this is exactly why we'll be jumping into that new series I just mentioned the Gospel of John. When Aaron returns next week, we will be learning through the, the very words and the very life of Jesus. But before that, you're stuck with me <laughs> for a week. If you know me, you know uh, one of the things that I hate is being asked to speak but not be given a, a topic to speak about. <laughs> the reason for this is I'm, I'm an odd guy. There's, there's odd thoughts swirling around in my head. And the, the continual problem I find myself in is that I, I'm normal enough to be aware that not all of my odd thoughts should be shared out loud. But I'm still odd enough to never quite be sure which ones those are. And so being put in a position where I'm just supposed to make up a topic is not a position I like to be in. So here's what I think we can do this morning. As we transition from studying a healthy church, how to do church, or uh, the big word for that is ecclesiology, and then we're going to transition into studying Jesus himself in a gospel, the big word for that, Christology. I'd like to maybe bridge the gap between those by studying humanity a little bit, doing a little bit of, of biblical anthropology. We're going to look at a short book of the Bible that, that not only contains in it basically the, the DNA of everything that the Old Testament is made up of, but it also perfectly describes humanity. We'll find many things that we can relate to in here, things that we can learn from, um, but I hope most of all that we'll see very, very clearly the problem of the human condition without Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes, the title of today's message is Sunset to Sunrise. So if you want to grab your Bibles or, or whatever you use to read the Bible, um, or you want to use one of the Bibles around the room, get it out. We'll be looking at Malachi 3.16 through 4.6. That's page 802 if you're one, using one of those Bibles in the room. But you also might want to back up a page or two um, because... To make this make the most sense, we're actually going to just look at Malachi as a whole, and then we'll focus in on our section of Scripture a little more. The main point for this morning is remembering God's Word and hoping in God's judgment sustains a right with God life. Remembering God's Word, hoping in His judgment sustains a right with God life. Malachi, as we think about it, it's the name of this prophet, and the name just means my messenger. We know basically nothing about 
Malachi, about this prophet. The name Malachi is found here and nowhere else. <laughs> Some people even think maybe it's not even a name at all, that it's kind of a, a pseudonym for an anonymous prophet writing in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But there's plenty of other reasons to believe it's a real name and a real guy. He's writing to the nation of Israel after they have returned from their exile in Babylon. They were exiled to Babylon, the Bible tells us, uh, as punishment for Israel's failure to uphold this covenant through uh, disobedience and idol worship, uphold their covenant with God. Having been allowed to return, Cyrus wrote a decree that allowed them to return to their own land. And then in response to the prophetic ministries of a couple other prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the temple has been rebuilt probably by this time. The, the walls of Jerusalem have been rebuilt because of Nehemiah and the band of guys that he uh, grew together. If you know any of those stories, they're uh, really great like heroic tales of how this came to be. But we're hundreds, maybe probably about 800 years after that return. And the people have rebuilt that temple. They've rebuilt their homes. They're starting to live again. But times are still difficult for God's people when the hopes of all the covenant promises of the prophets are not seen quickly enough. The Israelites who repopulated the city proved to be just as unfaithful to Yahweh as the ancestors who brought on that exile in the first place. Jerusalem has become a place that's really marked by injustice and poverty. And this that we're going to read or look at today is the last book of the Old Testament. It is generally agreed that this is the last thing communicated to God's people before we get to the New Testament period that we're going to be in next week. The, the sun is kind of setting on the Old Testament. Darkness is falling as the conclusion of this book marks a period of 400 years of silence between God and his people. The main message of this book really is a call to reform. It's a call to reform the general attitudes and practices of Israel's worship to God. He does this through a series of six disputes that we'll look at in a second. Disputes between God and his people where God is creating a dialogue by speaking on behalf of what the people have already said to him. I encourage you, you can go read this on your own. It's really short. You could probably sit down and read it in 10 minutes this afternoon. You can watch one of those uh, Bible project video summaries of it that are really helpful. Um, we won't read it all this morning, but here's, here's the six disputes. If you're keeping notes, dispute one is about God's love. The first dispute is found in Malachi 1, it's verses 2 through 5, where God claims that he loves his people. I have loved you. And the people rudely question the claim. How? How have you loved us, they say. But God's claim is vindicated by the fact that he chose his people. Jacob's descendants who become Israel were, were no more worthy or, or deserving of God's blessing than Esau's de descendants or the, the kingdom of Edom, right? And they deserved actually the same fate as Esau's descendants deserved as all humanity deserves. But in an act of elective love, God chose them. And chose to bless them. That is how he's loved them. Immediately though, in this first dispute, we see their skepticism of God's love. Their suspicion. Their doubting of God's faithfulness. 
It's revealed right away. And as I read each of these disputes, every time I started thinking, isn't, isn't this like us? <laughs> isn't this a lot like us? If we're honest, when we face difficult circumstances or, or suffering or, or even just confusion and trials of all various sizes, in those circumstances, it feels often, not always, but often it feels like all of God's past faithfulness in our lives kind of starts to dim in our memory and our own faithfulness also kind of starts to look like God's unfaithfulness to us. Dispute two. This is about God's honor. The second dispute is found in Malachi 1.6. takes us all the way to 2.9. God claims that they are not honoring him and they despise his name. And the people question that claim too. They say, really, come on, how have we despised you? He said, by polluting my worship. Oh, oh really, how, how have we polluted you? But God's claim is vindicated again as he shows their apathy and the, the begrudgingly way that they are bringing their sacrifices to him. They're bringing lame, sick, leftover kind of garbage sacrifices to him. And even the priests of the nation, instead of instructing the people of how to honor and value God, how they should be approaching worship, they, they actually condone it and even participate in this kind of corrupted form of worship. So almost as if they're just shrugging their shoulders saying, meh. That's probably good enough worship for God, right? And, and I, I wonder, <laughs> as I ponder this, isn't, isn't this kind of like us? It's so easy to, to come to worship with the bare minimum or, or just kind of whatever energy we have left over from the stuff that we were actually really excited about this weekend. Brandon mentioned it already because I, I said it earlier, the Seahawks have a 10 a.m. game. They're playing right now. And uh, if, I'm, if I'm brutally honest with myself and reflecting, there is a part of me that very much would not mind canceling second service and going and watching it, right? Like, I mean, they're going to win the Super Bowl this year, and now I'm, I can't say that I watched all of their games. It's happening right now. Don't, don't tell me if they're, if they're doing well. But when I think about that, that that's something that, that we all do, right? That like I have a thing that I want to do and, and God, you can kind of just have the, the leftover parts of my time that I didn't have something else that I wanted to do with. We do this, it, 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 sometimes we do this or sometimes we just kind of desire to do this in a myriad of big and little ways all the time to which I could imagine, just like God says in this book of Malachi, he says to the people, he's like, I, I, oh, that someone would just close the doors and lock them so I don't have to endure this kind of lame, half-hearted offering you're bringing. And I wonder if God's ever felt that <laughs> about the way that I've approached him in worship. Dispute number three, it's the people's faithfulness in this dispute. Third dispute is chapter two. It is verses to, uh, sorry, chapter 2, verses 10 through 13, and God is claiming that the people have not been faithful to him, and furthermore, not even faithful to each other. And while the, the people question why he's not accepting their worship, why they can weep and wail at his altar and he's not hearing it, God is vindicated again by pointing out that the people are, are marrying foreign partners, which 
is not about preserving a, a racial dynamic and it is all about preserving a, a religious and, and worship faithfulness to God. We can see if we look back in Nehemiah just a little bit before this time that the marrying of outside people wasn't just the marrying of outside people, it was actually adopting their gods, worshiping their gods in the very same place that they're supposed to be worshiping Yahweh. And beyond that, it shows that they're, they're divorcing their spouses because Basically, simply, they don't want to be married to them anymore. This is the part of the Bible that sometimes people say, uh, quote it and say, God hates divorce. Probably in your ESV Bible, it doesn't say that. Probably a more accurate way to understand that is that the husband hates the wife and divorces her. They stopped loving her and then walked away. And when you think about that, it, you, you know, right away you kind of go, uh-oh, <laughs> Uh-oh, doesn't that sound like us again? Isn't that like us? How often do we, do we find Christians pursuing romantic and, and spiritual relationships with non-Christians who by the very nature of their non-relationship toward God will only encourage us toward putting other priorities in the place of God. It's just the very nature of the relationship. How often do we see Christians with, with what... Oregon calls a no-fault divorce and churches who do not question or instruct. Now, they're clear biblical reasons for divorce. The Bible also gives us clear instructions for the attitude and the faithfulness in which a, a non-Christian spouse should have toward their or uh, sorry, a Christian spouse should have toward their non-Christian partner. So this isn't me uh, being judgmental or dismissive of something and situations that I know are painful and complicated and difficult. I empathize with anyone affected by these topics. And in each, we can only move forward by making the next most God-honoring choice. But most of all, what we see in this is that uh, Malachi is showing us that when we worship a holy God, it is not something that we go to a place and we do. It is something we do with our lives. It is something we do with the people around us. Worship of a holy God reaches all the way into the most intimate places of your life, into the most intimate relationships, into your very home. That's what worship of a holy God is like. And most of all, we see in Malachi that the worship of a holy God is it's not just difficult, but it's nearly impossible for broken and sinful humans, even ones that God, in his infinite wisdom, has chosen for himself. Now, for the sake of time, because the next three disputes and, uh, are actually just kind of repeated themes, but in the opposite order that they just came, we'll go really fast through the next three. Dispute four, if you're still taking notes, it's 2.17 all the way to 3.6. God, God's claim is that their speech toward him has grown wearisome. They question the claim that, uh, sorry, they question the claim and he is vindicated in his claim because he shows that what the people have been saying is that those who do evil is who God counts as good. And they ask, where is this God of justice that we've heard so much about, right? The prophets have been telling us of this God of justice. Where is he? He's not here. 
And so where uh, God goes with this to vindicate his claim even further, he talks about uh, something that we'll talk about in a minute, this coming day of the Lord. And it says in that day, he will purify his people and then swiftly judgment will come after that purification. Dispute five, the people's obedience is in question now, three, seven through 12. Once again, it, it deals with this kind of leftover begrudging type of worship. Uh, and that's revealed in their failure to obey the command to bring a tenth of their income and their resources to the temple. And what this results in is both neglect of God's temple and neglect of the ministries that are intended for all the people of Israel that they all should benefit from. And this leads to the kind of often misused in a little bit of a manipulative fashion uh, part where God says, go ahead and test me in this. Bring the full offering to me and see if I won't pour out more blessing than you could imagine. He says, go ahead and test me in this. Dispute six is again about God's love. You can find it 313 through 43. God claims their words have been hard against him. When they question that claim, he is vindicated by their own words where they have claimed that, that it really God doesn't make a big distinction between who is wicked and who is righteous. And his chosen people and the wicked sometimes are inversely blessed. What, what kind of feels like a, maybe a mocking response to God's offer to be tested, to see how much he will bless them. They basically respond saying that there's no profit even to be found there. We've already seen the arrogant and the evildoers, they test you all the time and they're blessed. We've seen the test. We don't need to take a test with you. We've seen the test and we see who succeeds. And for the last time, I, I think about that and wonder, isn't, isn't this like us a lot of times? In our weaker moments, don't we look around and, and say, man, I'm better off not living by God's moral and ethical standards. Look around. Look at the way evil people succeed and prosper. It's not fair. It's not right. Why, why isn't God doing anything about this at all? And then for the first time, here's where this pattern shifts. For the first time in this entire book, the writing ceases to, become, uh, ceases to be this dialogue between God and his people, and it becomes a narrative. And so on that shift, and with the longest introduction I've ever given to a passage we were reading. Let's read our main text for the morning. And it starts with this narrative, 316. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. The distinction between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evil doers will be stubble. That day is, uh, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But 
For those who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And for the first time, outside of the God's account of the people questioning him, we see some people respond. Those who feared the Lord. The fear of the Lord or as Warren Wearsby describes it, the joyful fear of the Lord, because the Bible gives emphasis both to the fear of the Lord and to the joy of the Lord. It's one of those biblical paradoxes that doesn't quite make sense on the surface, but when you dig into it, it contains uh, so much wisdom for us. The fear of the Lord is that reverent respect for God that is born not of terror, but of knowledge, love, and faith. The better we know God, the more we love and trust him, the more we want to please him. In the spiritual life, joy without fear can be shallow and careless, while fear without joy can be destructive. Terror paralyzes, but godly fear energizes us. Mingled with joy, godly fear is a great source of power. I heard uh, Mark Dever say something about the fear of the Lord that I think he actually stole from someone else because I found it in an older writing somewhere else. But it said that the fear of the Lord is a fear that silences all other fears. The fear of the Lord, when we're thinking about pleasing him, we are a lot less afraid of what our final outcome will be. We're less afraid of what other people think of us. We're less afraid about getting our own and being in the position we want to be in because the fear of the Lord has silenced all other fears. Along with this idea, if you look back to the second dispute that we had here, as God speaks to the priests who are the descendants of Levi, he reminds them of the covenant he made with their forefather Levi. Malachi 2.5, this is how he describes it. He says, my covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear. He feared me. He stood in awe of my name. The same covenant of fear and awe is a covenant of life and peace. Once again, this is a fear, not like terror, but of awe and reverence. And the felt experience of that fear could equally be described as life and peace. And so it was then, right? This is how we start. Then, when resentfulness, hopelessness, disrespect, corruption, contempt for God has grown to this monstrous proportion that those who feared God began to speak. As could be said, maybe better, they spoke often or they conversed together frequently. And although we heard very specifically what the people who were having a big problem with God were saying, here, the Holy Spirit didn't see fit to give us any specifics about what those who feared the Lord are saying. It probably mattered less what they said and a lot more that it was being said in reverence to God. 
Some have suggested maybe their words were fairly similar to Psalm 73. Verses 1 through 3 say this, Surely God is good to Israel, those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, which would be an amazing psalm for us to return to, to fuel our prayer times when we are feeling a lot more like those who are questioning God than those who fear God. Of this section, Joyce Baldwin writes, those who feared the Lord are not necessarily a different group from those who had been complaining, but they are those who have taken the rebuke. And they begin to encourage each other to renewed faith. It is this groping after faith that the Lord heeded and heard. The book of remembrance recorded not righteous deeds as in a Persian king's chronicles, but the names of those who feared the Lord and thought on his name. Like Abram, they believed God and in so doing found themselves accounted righteous. They don't just fear, as it just said there. They also esteemed his name. They revered his name. It also carries the meaning that they, they pondered his name. They thought often of him. And, and that's the people who God takes pleasure in. Those who think often of him and speak often to each other about him. That's the type of godly friendships that we're trying to cultivate here in our church as we do life groups, as we do one-to-one Bible reading or any of the other places that are there for you to gather, that we would be a type of people who think often of God and speak often of God to each other because that's what the Lord delights in. And so maybe what our our attention should gravitate to the most is God's reaction to us from this narrative part of the story. Malachi emphasizes the godly being credited with righteousness by how immediate God's response is to them. God's responsiveness to the people who know him. God writes their name in a book of remembrance. It's a common biblical image that God is knowing his people whether that's being taken figuratively here to describe God not forgetting or if this is like the book of life we see referenced in Daniel or Revelation, the point is the same either way, that God knows his own, that not one will be forgotten and not one will be forsaken. They are mine, he says. They will be my treasured possession. Something that's claimed of Israel as God made his covenant with Moses. And later, that's a phrase extended to all of God's covenant people who have put their faith in Jesus. First Peter 2.9, it says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then get this, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. At the end of that first paragraph we just read, there's a repeated pair uh, in in Hebrew poetry. We call it parallelism. It it takes two things and puts them together. It kind of equates them. So with all the doubting that, that God lets evil people prosper all the time, with all of that, God says solemnly, you will know. Once again, you'll return to me, you will know that there is a difference between the righteous and the wicked. 
There's a difference between those who serve him and those who do not serve him. This passage, it never actually gives us any specific real action that makes these people qualified to be thought of as righteous. But here, serving God is kind of equated with righteousness. The people were doubting there was any need or any benefit to revering God whatsoever. And God makes it clear that there will be a day when the world is judged. That some will be found righteous and some will be found wicked. And that depends entirely on their relationship, their orientation toward God. A great and terrible day of the Lord is coming for the arrogant and those who do evil. It's going to be like a burning oven, like like a scorching heat, something that could reduce an entire field to stubble. But unlike earlier in this book where there is a a purifying nature to that uh, described fire, here, this leaves neither root nor branch. It is all-consuming. And yet, even then, the metaphor shifts a little bit right away. For those who fear his name, for the ones who repented, who received the correction, who put their faith in God's victory over evil, the same heat that that burned is a sunrise of righteousness with healing in its wings, bringing healing, wholeness, and peace. Furthermore, it brings joy to his people. They will leap and they will dance and they will celebrate like little baby calves being let out of their stalls. When you get home, just please, Google calves being let out of the stall for the first time. A baby calf being let out of the barn for the first time. It will, it will be the cutest thing you watch today, I guarantee it. But that is how we can feel on that day. A great and terrible day, both terrible but great. We can feel that sense of joy and true healing and true peace to the extent that is unfathomable to us in our present state. And and probably I think here's where I feel the most conflicted. Here's where I don't even want to preach a passage like this. Because I I can't imagine. (laughs) I can't imagine a day where people who I feel so strongly about, who I feel so much care for, would experience judgment and be found unrighteous and be separated from God forever. I can't imagine a day like that where I feel joy and celebration. And I think what we have to look at when we're looking at a passage like this, we have to think about that there is a very important truth in the Bible, and that is that there is no one righteous. There is not one And so to be counted as righteous, to finally be at peace before a holy God, we will finally understand the true weight of sin, the true weight and consequences of rebellion against a perfect holy God. And there in that moment will be no doubt as to whether God's judgment toward anyone was undeserved. And and I... (laughs) I clearly say that with so much sorrow (laughs) right now. But what this is showing us is that in that day, in that moment, 
that sorrow will be wiped away because we will see that God was good and perfect and right and loving in all that he did. And I can't imagine understanding or feeling that way, but this is the hope of the day to come, that it will be good and perfect and true. And for those counted righteous by God, it will be a day of healing and peace and truth and joy. The last two verses of this book are really more of an appendix than anything. If you're not familiar, you can miss it. But what's being shown in this little section here is the law and the prophets as really what is often used as a summary of all of the Hebrew Bible, the law of Moses, those first five books of the Bible, and all the writings of the prophets get summarized often that way. And it's where we get our main point for the morning, remembering God's word and hoping in his judgment, sustains a right with God life. This conclusion serves as really the recipe that sustains the type of godliness that these faithful, revering remnant of Israel have found with God. It says, remember the law of Moses. The word here for remember, it carries with it uh, really more of a call to action than just a recollection of something. It's saying more, recall it, and then do it. The thing that you remembered is the thing that you're putting into practice. And Elijah here, he, he does represent the greatest of God's prophets. But he also, and represents in that way the writings of all the prophets. But it's also true that he will be sent to prepare the way for the coming day of the Lord. And in his Ministry, he will be uniting the, the offspring back to the ancestors with whom the covenant was first made. And the solemn warning that this book ends with is that if that doesn't happen, if that's not the way it goes, that the land will be cursed and destroyed. And as I said, that's the last word that anyone heard for 400 years of silence between God and man. And that's exactly where we'll pick up next week. In the Gospel of John. And spoiler alert, real quick, pretty early on we're going to see that there's a guy, and he doesn't like calling himself Elijah, but we know from Jesus' words and other parts of the Bible that he was the Elijah to come to prepare the way. But that's getting a little bit ahead of things, because where I want us to stop right now is at this point that maybe feels a little bit somewhat confused and jumbled. Because what I've said so far is that God's word and predictions of God's future judgment should sustain righteousness in our lives. But I also spent most of our time this morning explaining the unrighteousness of the people who were handed that law directly and the people who those prophets spoke to directly. And I also tried to convince you that we are just like them. That that was not a, some weird ancient Bible people problem, but that is the quintessential human problem. And so if we're to be counted righteous because of our reverence we can show to God, if we're to be counted righteous because of the way we are faithful to God, or, or we're to be counted righteous because of our service to God, we have learned from Malachi that mere humans will do those things at best imperfectly, and most likely over time more and more begrudgingly and more and more corruptly. And so as we close our morning, look one more time at chapter 3, Verse 17, 
As God says, I will make them my treasured possessions, he says, I will spare them as a father spares his son who serves him. In in what John Barry calls supreme irony, God doesn't spare his own son. He doesn't spare his own son who serves him. He doesn't spare his own son who who did what we could never do. He served him perfectly and faithfully. What came to be revealed as scripture continued was that what, what all the laws were pointing us to, what all those prophets had been talking about, what, what all of scripture continually points us to is we need a savior and that savior is Jesus Christ. When we remember God's word, when we hope in his judgment, we remember and we hope in Jesus who fulfilled the words, who bore our judgment so that we could be right with God, that we could be the sons and daughters of God who are spared, who are shown mercy. Those who fear him and esteem his name, Jesus Christ, the name above every name, are given new life and hope for a future. So if you're a Christian this morning, and maybe you have been struggling with apathy or, or with doubting God's faithfulness as we all do from time to time. This is a message that should draw us back into the hope of a future with God. It should invite us to fear God again, to be concerned with how we worship how we revere him, and to remember and hope because a, a right with God life is sustained by remembering and hoping, but it's sustained because it has actually been made possible through Jesus. If you're not a Christian, I invite you to also reflect on God's word, what you've heard today. If this described human problem is true, if the judgment described here is real, what solution is there other than Jesus? This warning here at the end of the Old Testament, it's not the last time we're warned of this day. This very same warning is found at the end of the New Testament as well. But we're here, the final words are curse. When we get there, the final word is grace. And it's a grace available to each of us. Revelation 22, 21, the last sentence of the Bible The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time to reflect on what it's like to be human, to to hold a mirror up to ourselves, to see the ways that we fall short, to see the ways that that the things that are in us, the things in our heart that make it impossible to live up to and be in the presence of the standards of a holy God. And we thank you that you were always working that out. You always had a plan. God, that you choose us, that you choose to send your son to make a way for us. And God, we pray that you would open our hearts, our minds to that truth that you would use this morning to uh, encourage us, to admonish us maybe, to uh, push us forward. 
God, we pray for uh, those who you are calling right now, that they would be open to hearing your message and to responding to the action that you have already taken in their lives. And God, we pray for us that we would be the type of people who are thinking of you often and speaking of you often, that we would surround ourselves and, and be the people surrounding others with godly friendships and, uh, and encouragement. And God, we thank you for your word and for the way that it can always teach us and help us. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.